It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia! A quick friendly reminder, running the dishwasher and charging your cell phone count as chores in a pinch. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ryan. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Ryan is KJ's cousin and works in the film industry, helping to release independent films, including the upcoming Belly of the Beast, and beating superbugs. You may remember Ryan from our Time Crimes episode, and Ryan has her own show that you should check out called Socially Isolated, which explores what people are doing during the pandemic in the Pacific Northwest. Ryan still conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to 2006 in Japan. Pitapa contactless fare card is introduced in the Kansai region. The Bank of Japan abolishes the zero interest rate policy, and the Nintendo Wii is released. During all this, Tetsuya Nakashima releases his movie, Memories of Matsuko. Tetsuya Nakashima is also known for Kamikaze Girls, Confessions, and World of Kanako. Other big movies in Japan in 2006 include a disaster movie called Nihon Chinbutsu, an action drama called Limit of Love, and a Studio Ghibli movie called Tales of Earthsea. In Memories of Matsuko, we follow Matsuko's nephew Sho, who is tasked with cleaning out Matsuko's apartment after she's been murdered. The movie tells the life of Matsuko as Sho is learning about his aunt. The story is told in a big fish style where we are getting these hyper-realistic stories of Matsuko's life. This is the movie that sent me on a quest to find more international films. While living in Japan, my wife was part of a group that reached out to Gaikokujin, or foreigners living in Japan, and that group held a movie night featuring Memories of Matsuko. I had never seen anything like this before, and I'm hoping we get a chance today to talk about media that has changed what we thought a particular medium could be. Nick, if you only had one word to describe Memories of Matsuko, what would it be? Dense. Tom? Excess. Ryan? Technicolor. And my word would be exhausting. It's time for question one. Name one song you can remember from the movie. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in? All right. Tom, what do you have? Love is life. Nick, what do you have? Happy Wednesday. And Ryan, what do you have? Man, I am impressed. I don't remember any of them specifically except for the hip hop number during prison. Points for everybody. Um, Tom, you got the prison song. Ryan, you got the prison song. And Nick, you got one of my favorite songs, the Happy Wednesday one. Uh, so how'd you guys feel about the music? Would you call this a musical? Was it? Did it fit the movie? Should it not have been in the movie? So I'll say uh, the, the music... And the use of music in it reminded me a little bit of one of my favorite movie musicals, uh, th this film, uh, Pennies from Heaven from 1981, which uses music in order to create a kind of alienation effect and, and create some sort of 
social commentary by using the, the genre of the great American musical, musical itself. Um, I, I don't think this movie is quite doing that, but it's not doing the standard romantic musical numbers either. There is something about the genre of the, uh, you know, uh, American film or, or romantic film generally that is being um, sublimated by the musical numbers, that they end up becoming um, sort of commentary on themselves. And so I think, you know, you see that with, um, with the Happy Wednesday song, which is about delirium or the, the, the delirium that makes her um, unable to see what's really going on, the, the reality she's in. And as these songs progress until about the last 40 minutes of the film, um, the, the kind of fantastical and therefore delusional atmosphere she places herself in becomes more and more extensive until she's actually seeing, is it Ryu, the really final boyfriend, she sees his head floating in the moon. And I think that the musicals are there to, uh, the musical numbers are there to help us enter that kind of uh, state of delirium. But they're very oddly also commenting on the genre themselves. And I don't think it's musicals, a musical genre. I think it's more of like um, the great epic picture. I think that's more of what they're commenting on. My example of this would be the lettering in the beginning and the opening credits is the exact same lettering used for the Gone with the Wind opening credits. That kind of, you know, grand do 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 do, you know, and the, the, um, that type of thing. So I think that's what's going on in the picture. I would say that this isn't a typical musical because I'm in general not a big fan of musicals. They just don't call out to me. But what I will say is I was drawn to some of the songs in this movie because unlike traditional musicals where it's the main characters dancing through the plot, I almost felt maybe not all, but most of the musicals were almost cutaways to give us other information or make something more dramatic to what's going on in her mind or the character's minds versus playing out the plot in song. Plus for me, some of these songs were just out there, crazy. And you're going along and you're being pulled in different directions. And all of a sudden you get pulled right into a certain song that you didn't even see coming. I mean, Happy Wednesday is a perfect example of that. So that's why I don't think it's a typical musical because I'm usually not drawn to those. And I actually didn't dislike most of the songs, which kind of caught me off guard as I was watching this film. I also really like the uh, Bend and Stretch Reach for the Stars song that kind of happens over and over and over again. Um, for some reason, that felt like it tied some of the movie together. Whereas the, not the, the movie felt tied together, even though it could have felt very disjointed because you have a lot of different segments, but I, I felt like that was a good beat throughout the whole, the whole movie. I'm not sure where further dialogue will go on this, but that's why my word was dense because it's already a two hours and 10 minutes runtime. And there's a lot of story packed within that. So it's not like you had a small movie that had a lot of story packed in. You had a long movie that had a lot of story packed into it. Well, I'll say that I was glad to hear Thomas sort of referenced what I was getting at with my word, which was technicolor. So um, it seems like you picked up a lot on that. There was sort of this 
epicness of, you know, and the brightness of the colors and the length <laughs> that sort of harkens back to, but also the, um, the other thing I would say is that we're sort of familiar with the American epics like Gone with the Wind and, and we can, so when there's like a modern um, take on those and um, I'm blocking the name of, there was a Juliet uh, Moore movie where she was a lot like a Douglas Sirk kind of a callback to that. And we could all recognize that that was the style that it was playing on with these melodramas. But I feel like I don't know enough about Japanese filmmaking traditions to see if this was a commentary on one of those. So maybe if you guys know, maybe you could jump in and tell me some more about what this tradition might be doing a call back to. That was also my confusion was, um, um, you know, the, the idea with pennies from heaven um, and, and the, what's called a Brechtian musical, that's just the genre is that it becomes a, a sort of social commentary. And so with, with the Brechtian musical, it's, it's about, you know, kind of economic depression, blah, you know, a comment on, on capitalism, et cetera. Um, and that's pretty obvious in it. And, and Brechtian musicals tend to, you tend to see the, the theme there. This doesn't seem to really be taking aim at those kind of George Stevens giant type, type pictures. It really seems to, to love them. But at the same time, that becomes the vehicle by which we see she is delusional, right? The, the, the grand scale, because we're given in the beginning two introductions. We're given the kind of um, hard and fast introduction where we meet her, her nephew and he breaks up with his girlfriend and it's very modern. And then a second introduction in which we meet her and that's the Gone with the Wind, George Stevens Giants introduction. Um, and I, the movie seems to both um, use that as a means to, to really love the, this woman, um, you know, who, who goes through these horrible things, but at the same time, I, I don't, I don't understand fully what it's doing there. Yeah, and Ryan, I, I'm not familiar with um, too many other Japanese films that this might be calling back to. But if any of our listeners want to reach out to us on Twitter, if they're familiar with any, I'd love to to dive in and see, uh, you know, maybe what 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 this is referencing. Um, I, I think you're spot on, Tom, with with Gone with the Wind and the, and those kind of epics. Um, and, and I also agree that whenever it does cut to a, a song. It's not a musical in that, that, like the song's not in universe, right? This is this is an outside kind of what, what Nick was saying, um, and I think that's a pretty interesting way to tell a story, right? It's almost what's going on in her mind. Like we get a better understanding of her through these fantastic songs. There were quite a few times where those songs would transition her to another stage and age in her life as well. So they gave us a snapshot through those songs of what was going on and what her life looked like at a certain point in time. Yeah, they're all from her perspective, right? This is a single perspective. She's not always singing everyone. Um, and there is one in, in frame song. I think that's the, uh, when she goes with her father to see the clowns, there's a song that previews that. But otherwise the songs are, are from her vantage. It's time for question two. What is the most prominent color in the movie? This is subjective. Locked in? Locked in. Locked in. There were a lot of reds. Sometimes they were happy reds. Sometimes they were sad reds. Sometimes they were bloody reds. So red. I was going to also say red, but now I'm going to also now throw in like a bright white sort of just like general luminousness. Sunset orange. 
Is that like a Benjamin Moore color or <laughs> Crayola? <laughs> yeah. They hired me to write Benjamin Moore's catalog. <laughs> um, I have a feeling this may happen a lot this episode, but points for everybody. I, any color would have worked. But yeah, the red stood out, uh, even, even blending a little bit. The maroon of her jacket when she's older, that, that seemed to be a, a prominent color. And then while I was watching the movie, I also thought, Tom, just the word sunset. Any color that's in a sunset just seemed to glow out of this movie. And I think it worked. You know, it was only, well, I was going to say it's only when it was in flashback, but even when we're watching show trying to figure things out, sometimes we got some of those colors. Do you guys think those colors worked in this film or was it obnoxious? Something about this movie to me just felt very 2001, which is the year it was made. So that, or no, this one the year it was set. So um, maybe not an accident, but it just had a, um, felt to me like a lot of other movies that I would consider of this era, like um, uh, Baz Luhrmann movies, um, especially like Moulin Rouge. But also to me, it has sort of this like kind of the like drug adjacent music video vibe of like train spotting or go like some of the Doug Lyman movie, early Doug Lyman movies. So to me, the that color felt like it was and it's funny because we all we just talked so much about how it reminded everybody of these like 30s and 40s epics. But to me, it felt like very there was something sort of drug tinged about it. Um, that's that and the color to me added to that. I'm going to throw something else in the mix. So this movie was a lot on the visuals as well as the audio musical songs, as we were saying in, after the first question. Something that really jumped out at me early, and whether it's this retro vibe or whatever you're talking about there, the songs in the backgrounds had almost this Disney vibe to me. So it was a really weird mix, like songbirds flying by and, and, and just the animation style on top of everything else that's going on. And then later in the movie, I believe it was Megumi who quite specifically says that she thinks that the world is like Snow White and Cinderella. And I'm like, okay, they're legit referencing Disney here. So it wasn't just me getting subtle hints of it. That that actually was, it had to be an influence. So you add that to the mix of everything else you just talked about, Ryan, and your mind is just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's Disney through Danny Boyle, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like you, you drop some acid and, and then you watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And that's where my word excess came from. Because I, I had the same thing you did, Ryan, that it was, it, it reminds me of that, yeah, that, um, yeah, that like, what, what train spotting to um, a little bit Baz Luhrmann, because Baz Luhrmann also loves the, the two, his films are too much, right? That's the- And just like that frenetic editing. Yeah, exactly. As many cuts as possible. We're gonna zoom in on somebody in kind of a glass bowl lens. Um, because we can, uh, you know, it's, it's clearly a set. A lot of times we're in areas that are clearly, clearly look like a set much in the way Moulin Rouge does. Um, uh, and that's, that was what the, the feeling was. It's, uh, it's not a comfortable world to be in. I'll say that. And I think that the more, um, the more Disney through acid the scene is, the more uncomfortable it is. And in the last 40 minutes, so I think I enjoyed the last 40 minutes more than anything is a lot of that felt um, that it was coming out of the film, that the film was getting um, uh, more, 
the acid trip was was over. It was finishing up. And what we had now was this woman alone with her garbage. And these delusions became more obvious, obviously delusional, as if we're standing outside of her experience as opposed to with her as we had been before. Yeah, because even when we get the boy band sequences, a lot of that hyper color goes away. And when that, that could have been a musical number, it didn't feel as much like a musical number when she goes to the concert, she's watching on TV. Yeah, I didn't think of that. The movie definitely sobers up by the end. Yeah, all, all you're left is was with the river. The river is the last source of color. I believe that's on purpose, though, because even in KJ's intro, I'm, I'm glad he brought up the movie Big Fish because there's a lot to say about that. Now, the only difference between Big Fish and this movie is Big Fish, they used fantastical stories to really exaggerate mundane activities. Whereas in this movie, we use the fantastic to make the sadness more palatable. <laughs> so it's it's a different way of framing. Things are great. And, and even after she gets beat one of her many beatings by which is horrible i felt so sad for the character she starts singing songs about i'd rather be with him getting beat than be alone like so it has that same kind of tone but i think that's why we get this acid trip type happiness because we know it's all fake it's not real so i really enjoyed that way they portrayed that throughout this film yeah, I would say, I think the big fish comparison is good, um, but there is a difference between delusion and self-invention. Uh, delusion is the, the, you have a lack of agency there when you believe you do have agency. And self-invention, which I think is what big fish is about. It's about, I find that I can invent my past because I can, because I could just say what happened to me in the past. Why not? Why accept a narrative I don't like? It's about um, how how non-delusional that is, that that isn't a legitimate course of living, self-invention, so, you know, creating your own narrative. Um, in this story, uh, our, our lead character doesn't have that ability. But she does seem to just be overburdened with sort of like love to give, energy, uh, some kind of like lust for life um, and I think that like the color gives gives that and and yeah just being we're sort of inside her mind and like just the energy she has for the world that just keeps rejecting her yeah I, I'm not proposing it's her fault <laughs> you know I think that I think that's right that it's um it, it was also one of the things that frustrated me with the movie was it seems her there's a bit of a kind of pop psychology makeup to her which is as a young girl she was rejected by her father and then she always sought out men who were prone to reject her. I mean, I, I, that made me kind of want to pull my hair out. But, um, you know, I, I think I, I think once you're kind of able to forget, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the kind of uh, psychological world building that's going on, um, I was able to have, you know, a lot of sympathy for her. And I think, again, I, I keep saying this, but that last 40 minutes really I, I found quite affecting for that reason. That was the one thing I had to kind of just say, okay, I'm going to deal with that. She had that stereotypical, and there's no other way to put it, daddy issues type you know, situation going on. And, and I just took it for what it was. But what I will say is 
the lead actress did a very good job in her role because I did feel bad for her character and I, I wanted better for her and life was just never seeming to work out for her. The end of round one, we're tied with two across the board. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. Last year, my wife and I visited the Amazon rainforest. We saw howler monkeys, jaguars, and a pink Amazon river dolphin. Overhead, the majesty of the macaw screamed his mating song, while the red and yellow-necked king vultures soared between man and god. The amorphophallus titanium seemed to glow yellow in the moonlight, and the mystical bow dentel trees crowded the sky with its white flowers. Within this globe of multicolored light and stunning displays of the emergent variety that nature can produce, all I could think of was... Ugh, I'm hungry. Why doesn't somebody knock all this crap down and build me a Denny's? Now that's what I would call a vacation. But sadly, there was no Denny's. That's when I started to buy Doc Olson's anti-organic food. Unlike organic food, which claims to feed their animals no antibodies or growth hormones, Doc Olson's anti-organic meats stuffs their animals with enough steroids to make their cows look like the black and white love child of Lou Ferrigno and Wonder Woman. And in addition, for every five pounds of testosterone-fueled meat you purchase, Doc Olson himself will burn down one acre of rainforest. That's right. Him and his team of firebrand mercenaries are in every major rainforest in the world just waiting to take your lunch order and then light it up. My dream of Amazonian Denny's may be dead, but yours doesn't have to be. That's Doc Olson's anti-organic food. Eat some rage meat and light it up. And we're back. Before I turn it over to KJ for round two, we always ask the guest a critical question. Ryan, if you could watch this movie with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Well, you know, I gave it a lot of thought and it's hard to believe given that I could watch this with anyone dead or alive. But as I mentioned before, this really reminds me of 2001, which was when I was in college. And so I would like nothing more than to sit down and rewatch this with my friend, JP, who I went to college with. And he and I have lost touch since then. So JP, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are in the massive fan base, then get in touch with me and let's watch some movies virtually together. Did you watch any other movies with JP? Um, I mean, this was the era of, of like, I'm, I'm sure this is the kind of stuff he would, he was, he used to live in Hong Kong. So this was like just the kind of stuff that he would have turned me on to. So, so Ryan, I'm trying to, I'm trying to picture this. Um, when you were in college, or at least when I was in college, it was still tube TVs. 
usually on top of a dresser that was way too high. It was very, in retrospect, it was kind of uncomfortable to watch movies in, in the dorm. It's true, yeah. Was this in the dorm that you guys were yeah, watching? Yeah, you know, or? you'd like prop yourself up on, on someone's bed awkwardly. And then JP was also the type of guy, like you, KJ, who had miraculously downloaded the movie, you know? It's like, there was a few <laughs> people that were like DVD collectors and like they always had the Jim Jarmusch DVD collection and like how why they owned mm -hmm. those things when they ever bought them, I don't know. <laughs> they were expensive too. But, you know, JP was definitely like the guy who had it all downloaded somehow. And those things took up space then, you know? So that was like oh, yeah. another <laughs> magical feature. You could watch it and then you have to delete it after. <laughs> he also turned me on to um, uh, that, remember that viral video, All Your Base Are Belong to Us? So if you're talking about mm, yeah, <laughs> what, yeah. what was the movie I used to watch a lot with JP, it was the viral video, All Your Base Are Belong to Us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we're going into round two here. All the questions will be worth two points, so it's anybody's game because everybody's tied. It's time for question three. Three times in the film, Matsko says she thought her life was over. Name one of those times. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Ryan, what do you have? After she killed that random dude she had shacked up with. After she was um, confronted by the store owner and the owner or head of the school in front of the guy with the white teeth she liked about the stealing of the money. <laughs> and Nick, what do you have? I'm still wrapping my head around Tom's answer. <laughs> it's a good description of the movie. Yeah, my answer, I believe she did that when Ryu left jail and immediately slugged her in the face. She has flowers for this guy, and he comes up and clocks her and runs in the other direction, and now she is alone again after waiting years for this man. All right, and points to Ryan. Uh, she does Ooh. say that after she um, she murders her, um, yeah, the guy that she was living with kind of in between other prominent boyfriends. Um I believe she refers to him as like a lesser pimp or an aspiring pimp or a something of that pimp style. So he's called a money man. I looked that up. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other time, Tom, you were real close. So the, the other time is toward, towards the end of the movie, they flash back to when Ryu comes into the principal's office. She thinks he's going to confess. He says, I didn't take the money. Yeah, exactly. But he does that in front of... The the principal, oh. the owner of the school, the store owner, and also white teeth guy. Got it. For I some thought... reason, white teeth guy is there. It's the only time that those all of those people are in the same room. Uh, I thought you were talking about when um, the just the principal confronts her, and then she goes outside, and the white tooth man comes out of the dark. No, no, no. It's it's when the principal, but it's not even the principal. It's like the person ahead of the principal. Yeah, yeah. It's the superintendent, I, I keep, for lack I, of a better yeah, word. Whatever, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, points go to Tom then, too, because that was my confusion. And then, Nick, not during that prison scene, but it's when her first-ish boyfriend uh, commits suicide by train uh, <laughs> and she's standing in the rain. Mm -hmm. It was the other person who beat her for yes, no reason. Yes, Got yeah. it. Got yeah. Some of these oh, scenes that were, was were really tough. Yeah. Yeah. They just they, they don't even do a slap. They do a punch. Yeah. Like it's which kind of uh, makes you think about 
Tom's white tooth guy and that element of humor that seemed um, like present in the beginning that that did just kind of trickle away as we kept going. As you said, the last 40 minutes had a serious mood shift, but now reflecting back on all those different elements of brightness and humor that sort of misled us where we were going. Yeah, I think that the guy with the white pants and the and the white teeth, I, I think part of his role is if the Ryu money incident didn't happen, I think we are to assume that she would have continued to be a teacher and possibly ended up with you know, perfect uh, other teacher guy that that seemed to be there. They did go bowling. You know, that's a pretty <laughs> solid start to a relationship. Yeah, it, it's also the the ideal kind of situation, right? You know, she's she's as doe-eyed as a person can be. Um, she's, you know, a, a, a music teacher who's very popular and she has this like perfect man who blushes when he asks her out. And you know what I mean? He, he seems invented. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of it, it is, right? When she's talking about him, she's talking to Kami, her sister. Yeah, Kumi. Kumi, Kumi is her sister who is ill. She's, she has a chronic illness of some sort and is bedridden for most of the picture and, and dies fairly young. And, you know, we get the story of the man with the white teeth, um, who's so-called because whenever he smiles, his teeth glisten. Uh, there's a little animation of ding. And, uh, and that seems to be, he seems to be an invention of her telling Kumi about the, you know, the perfect man. Now those scenes though, aren't we watching it through her point of view? Like his face doesn't literally turn bright red, blushy. So I think all of that is through her lens, which I think was done well. Yeah, and these were, apart from the obvious framing of um, the the nephew finding out the story of his aunt, these are other reasons I thought Big Fish was kind of a good uh, a comparison because a lot of these stories are from her perspective. So I, she's probably an unreliable narrator and we're getting a slightly different version of what actually happened. Not to go there, but do you think the beatings were more extreme in her mind than in reality? I know that's getting into touchy ground, but I just was curious if now that we brought that up, I didn't think of it during the movie. Do you think, I think it's part of the style. Yeah. The movie's big and it's part of the performance style as well. Everything everybody does is, is, is it's not a movie or a performance style that works through subtlety. But that's just not what it is. It's it's about kind of surface performance. It's about largeness and and um, scaling up the emotion. It's not something uh, like I you know as an American watching movies or, or a Westerner or whatnot really kind of prize. We sort of tend to look for at least I do kind of these subtle performances in which a lot of things are under the surface, but still clear. This is, seems to be a different performance tradition that we're working with. So even the violence um, uh, is in excess. And I also think that's this director's style as well, not just a, 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 a comment on Japanese uh, artistic style, but I think this particular director likes his violence to be pitched past acceptable. Right. And for some reason, that extremity, that excess of of harm is what what he likes to convey or what he uses to convey. I mean, we, we KJ and I watched his previous movie. Um, what's that called again? Uh, World of Conoco. World of Conoco, which is 
is I, I turned it off after about an hour and a half. It's so, so violent and so kind of I, I disgusting that, but, but the whole movie was about, again, that excess, like that movie was about people who were so despicable and so violent that, you know, I, I, I personally couldn't get through it. He definitely accomplished that because all those scenes were shocking and off-putting, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Another thing uh, I really liked about Memories of Motsko, which I'm kind of surprised I liked, is in a lot of scenes, they would put things that didn't seem important, but then later on would be wrapped back into the story, right? At the end of Megumi's story, we see that she meets Motsko one more time at a hospital or something. And you don't really think about that at the time we're just like oh that's interesting but then we see the story of her getting to the hospital and we see it from Moscow's perspective and I kind of like the way they folded that into itself over and over and over again like that if that wasn't done well that could have been really obnoxious but I liked how they showed us things that were going to happen without us realizing those are something that was going to happen and then we got to see it happen yeah I, the future seems to be a threat by being reframed from her nephew show her nephew shows perspective um gives her redemption uh and and by redemption i don't mean that she's sinned so she's bad so she needs to be redeemed but it it prizes her and so in the last 40 minutes we see somebody who who will remember her though he he has no actual memories of her um but somebody who will remember her as um almost like a religious figure Right? He almost he contextualizes in that way. He just defines her as God, as does Ryu, her, her former lover. Uh, and that is, that's what's so kind of really touching and, and lovely about this movie is um, it uses the, the perspective of a person who doesn't have a perspective to redeem. I'm going to be a, a little argumentative just because I, I, um, I like the sentiment of the idea that her life was not meaningless and that, so that was something that kept coming up the, at the beginning of the film, the father mentioned, and it's as, as a flashback, it's mentioned again, uh, that her life was meaningless because, you know, for whatever reason, you know, we, we would, uh, for whatever our metrics are that would gauge that, that she didn't have a successful career, she doesn't, she didn't marry, she doesn't seem to have children. Uh, so I, I like the idea that her life was not meaningless, but uh, in the last 40 minutes I found, I just couldn't wait for it to end. <laughs> I just thought it just kept going. And the last 15 minutes, I was just, I just thought it was so overwrought. I was dying. And every time it cut, I was like, it has to be over and then it would fade back on again. I couldn't believe it. And so, so I just, I mean, I, so I appreciate the sentiment, but I was just like enough river. <laughs> was it too saccharine? Was it the, it was way too saccharine and just, just overwrought just yeah. too much. And then it kept going. Yeah. It's an, another type of excess. <laughs> it was. Ryan, you're not alone. I'm in your camp. It just kept going. And when I was saying how dense the movie was, that's one of the elements there at the end. I just, I kind of was like, I get the story already. Let's kind of wrap this up. Not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I, I watched this over multiple sittings just because of life. And honestly, I think I had to watch it over multiple sittings. Otherwise, I'm not sure if I could have gotten through the two hours and 10 minutes. 
So I'm going to draw up a comparison to this. And there's a, a Brian De Palma film from the 80s starring Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox called, it's a Vietnam War movie. And I, I just forgot the name because we're recording. So of course I forgot the name. But the uh, it's based on a David Rabe play. And if you ever know David Rabe, David Rabe writes these Vietnam War plays that are that are pretty brutal. And in the initial ending that he had written, it was... Um, that this this one this Vietnam vet had put these other people in prison for uh, harming uh, innocent Vietnamese people, and in the initial end they come out of prison and they get him, kill him or whatever. And in this ending that doesn't happen. It ends with this kind of cheese ball line that he has a nightmare on a subway and he wakes up and there's a woman sitting there and she goes, "Did you have a nightmare?" And he goes, "Yeah, but it's over now." And it's this complete cheese ball thing. And when people interviewed De Palma about it, he said, "Yeah, I know it's cheese ball, but I just love this character so much." I I wanted to make him happy at the end. And that's what I felt in these last four minutes. Yes, it's too much. Yes, we're waiting for it to cut and finish. Yes, we get the point, but God, he just wants to, he wants to, he wants to give somebody the memory of her so that she can live in the way she should have. And and going back to what we were saying, even Gone with the Wind can feel like that. Like, oh, it's still going. Like we're still. Oh yeah, I I, right. I yeah I know Gone with the Wind is. <laughs> so, well, we really can't compare it to one of the longest films, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm saying it's harkening back to some of those epics that may have gone on too long. Um, I also I also watched this in multiple sittings, and by the end, I felt like I had watched I don't know three or four movies. Right? It just it feels like a lot. It really does. It's time for. Question four. To whom does Matsko give her final haircut? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right. Sounds like everybody knows it. Everybody at the same time, maybe. One, two, three. Kumi? Her sister. Kumi, Yumi. Yep. Yep. All right. Point sister. <laughs> it's Yumi, right? Or is it Kumi? Kumi. No, Kumi. 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 Oh, okay. Yep. Kumi. Mm. You know, I have a dark question about her sister. Earlier in the conversation, I think Tom said that she died young, but I got the impression somewhere in the, in this long movie, so who knows how many years, because also this beautiful actress never never ages, either in real life or in the film. <laughs> Even when she's in her fat suit, she's she's beautiful. Um, so it, you know, it was hard to, to get a full sense of how much time was going by. You know, you could gauge, she had eight years in prison and you know, they, let, they let out a few things. You knew she died at 53 and you know, different things like that. But um, anyway, I, I actually was getting the impression that the sister, was continuing to live for longer than expected, which was maybe not a huge point of the film, but what she did check in with family from time to time and asked of the sister. And so I got this sort of impression that that too was yet another, like she had sort of made these sacrifices for her sick sister, didn't, you know, her father encouraged her not to tell her about her dating life because that would make her sick sister sad and all these things. And yet her sister ended up to live a maybe longer life than they had expected. So even that sacrifice was was not as didn't turn out as, as she was intending, but I could have been over-interpreting that. We know that you actually could track if you paid attention to the timeline of the movie because a lot of those different songs will literally say this is her in her 20s, in her 30s. There was a time where she the massage parlors were out of favor and she came back home. And then later the brother says that she left when she said big sister left or something like that. So you, it was either in like Matsuko's twenties or thirties, then her sister died, her younger sister died. So you're right though. I think she was bedridden for many, many years. Yeah. And she dies saying, um, what does she die saying? She's, she's looking for the, 
she's looking for her sister when she dies, right? That's her dying words. Right. Of course, by the by the very end, we're we've made it very clear that her sister welcomes her. Yeah, yeah. I the the family stuff seemed um the the family stuff I both liked and didn't like just because as I said before the, the the kind of psychology stuff was a little you know eye roll but I, I you know if you're gonna make a melodrama having a dying sister who welcomes you to heaven at the end of the movie why not man go for it <laughs> you know what I mean like if we're gonna go over the top in every single way possible have a stairway a literal stairway to heaven with your sister welcoming you, you know <laughs> I had that in my notes and then also if you noticed. When she was going a little cuckoo and gave her sister a haircut, the sister was had the haircut that she had, so she welcomed her. You know, at that stage, so it was it was definitely the ideal vision. But again, that's through her eyes, her vision of going to heaven. All right. After question four, Nick has four points. Ryan and Tom have six, so we're going on to a bonus question. It's time for a bonus question. How old is Matsko when Ryu was released from prison? I got it. Locked in. Locked in with a guess. Locked in. All right, Nick, what do you have? 30. Ryan? Yeah, I was going to say like 33. Tom? I'm going to go with 34. Ooh, got the prices right. Yeah, that's the strategy. <laughs> yeah, she is 40. So episode goes to Tom. Ah, Woo-hoo! she's 40? Really? Oh. Okay. <laughs> Actually, yeah, he was in jail well, for played. like eight years or something. Mm-hmm. But there were elements of comedic value sprinkled in the movie. And one of them was she has to leave in a rush because the Yakuza are coming. So she packs a bag and she throws like her oranges in it. <laughs> so and they just like, like spill over, like only a few. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like and she's like throwing this stuff in and then there was uh, there was another scene where the 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 nephew show his girlfriend was leaving a message on the phone and he's trying to light a cigarette and he's the lighter's not working the lighter's not working the lighter's not working just as he's listening there's like a fireball that almost like lights his hair on fire (laughs) like silly little things that if you weren't paying attention yeah, but what did you guys think of that murder, though? <laughs> the, the end of that. Wait, how which she... murder? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was her say, her which murder. murder? Our, you know, the one that matters. I mean, she gets killed by kids. Like, like there was a certain point where I was like, oh, this is just like a shaggy dog story where like the, the ending of how she got killed doesn't matter. This is just an excuse to tell her story. But then she was killed in this kind of meaningless way. And I was like, no, the ending matters. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the most effective violence in it. Affective with an A. But that that really struck home was the that kind of you know the meaninglessness of it because they're, they're not they're kids they don't even have developed intentions right so it's just sort of you know you stumbled upon puberty almost that's that's what ended up kind of taking you down i mean that that was really probably more effective than had more of an effect on me than any other violence in the movie and it was it was probably done the most tastefully. It was done at a distance. We didn't really see it. Um, I think that's why I thought it went long too, because that plot line that they were trying to tie up with the bow, where her life was meaningful. I enjoyed the story along the way, but I didn't really like buy into that because her life kind of happens and then it ends. And I know we're supposed to have this big epiphany, but you got to share with me, people. Like, what was this big epiphany where her life had meaning? 
I, I don't think it. <laughs> that was the reason I was. No, I was going to say that. Yeah, it seems like the the meaning for the brother is respectability or or kind of um, meaning as he can define it for himself, right? And 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 a meaningful life for the nephew then, or maybe from the perspective of of the filmmaker, is that you know your life, her life, ends up having meaning for these people for Ryu and then also for Showa? Show. Show. Show, her, her nephew, right? They both end up seeing her as kind of, a, you know, they, they both refer to her as, as a God figure, right? This, this is the kind of thing I can believe in. And, you know, it ends up having, it ends up having meaning for them. So the meaningful life ends up being, I mean, it's, it's a, a cliched thing, but, you know, melodrama permits that and good melodrama permits that nicely which is that you know the meaning your life has is not you to choose it's not for you to choose you know that type of thing my read on that when i'm really trying to search for how this all came together was that maybe her life was a good lesson for her nephew because it kind of seemed when we entered the film his his place is full of trash he was going to be a musician and we see literally see dust on the guitar when the father comes so maybe her whole life journey would allow her nephew maybe to go down a different path but that's me just searching i didn't think it was as impactful as maybe this whole 2 hour story should have gotten to the meaning of why she was there. I, I I get it, but that was the part where I thought it dragged. Yeah, either put him on a different path or give him permission to be on a similar path. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it would be a little more cliched to go, well, now he's, I mean, first of all, it doesn't make any sense for him to look at her and go, I don't want to be like that, right? Because that isolates her, that, that others her, that alienates her. She's the thing not to be. He, and, and to an extent, there's still a bit of, othering in the sense that if you're going to refer to somebody as a kind of God I can believe in, that's somebody apart from you, right? But it's it's um, it's somebody who he's kind of related to, but uh, but who whose memory can matter to him for the sake of the memories mattering, for the sake of here's a, a person who's sympathetic, who was who's kind of a part of me who I shared you know genetic information with and now I can have her memories and they could be something that is you know that is sweet and and sympathetic because she's a person deserving of of sympathy she's not the the successful businessman right you know that person's probably a lot harder to sympathize with and so he's able to give her life meaning and therefore take on that kind of, you know, maybe a different type of responsibility, the responsibility of preserving the memory, because who else is going to? It's time for Movie Rent! So I mentioned at the top of the episode that uh, for whatever reason in 2008, probably, when, when I saw this movie, I just, I didn't know that a movie could be a musical, could be um, as brutal as this movie, could be so hyper-realistic, but at the same time, feels pretty grounded when we're watching it through like show uh, her nephew feels like a very real character. I think I had students who could have been exactly that guy. Um, so I, I just didn't know all that could happen at one time in a movie. Um, is there any other uh, movies, books, TV shows that that had changed what you thought a movie book or TV show could be? 
I'd say it's it's kind of a merger. I'd say uh, uh, the works of William Gass, specifically the Tunnel or Omen Setter's Luck. He's a, a novel writer, and um, he is sort of bridging modernism and postmodernism. And uh, he was very, very kind of influential on me, like how a book can be structured or how chapters can be structured. He would write, he, the tunnel is structured in the way um, Arnold Schoenberg's 12 tone system is structured. And so it's, it's drawn from concert music in order to create the structure there. And the other one would be somebody like, um, like, like Finnegan's Wake from Joyce who does the same thing, right? He, not, not from Arnold Schoenberg's 12 tone, uh, Joyce predates that, but uh, or, mm, Finnegan's Wake does it. Kind of the same time anyway regardless but experiments and kind of, of structure and how those things can uh uh really launch off of and away from the the kind of dickensian development and an episode did those lead you to any other books that you otherwise may not oh have yes found? yeah 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 uh, i mean with uh, gas mostly writes criticism instead of fiction he's written a, a decent amount of fiction but a lot of criticism. And so his critical sources, uh, you know, what, what he's writing about, of course, but also he was part of the kind of um, uh, William Gaddis club. So Gass, Gaddis, John Hawkes, who was a, a lovely writer as well. Um, John Barth, if anybody knows, uh, you know, the, the, the Floating Opera, his book there, um, or the, the Sot Weed Factor is another Barth novel. Um, and yeah, it brought me to also uh, Gaddis's uh, The Recognitions, which is a book from 1954 or 55. That's stunning. It's a, it's a, I think a top five American novel. Um, and that whole, that, they were, they all kind of knew each other and, and were friends. Um, and it was kind of the less well-known school of, of American postmodernism. You could think of like Thomas Pinchon and those people as being the, the more, Don DeLillo being more, uh, more well-known school, um, but I really loved the kind of Gaddis gas thing that was that was going on in the corner. Well, I can't compete with those examples. Those are some some deep dives. I hope everyone was taking notes. So mine are, are you know ever so slightly more pedestrian than those. But I just thought back original immediately to to um, you know like high school and and the the movies that I would first watch to realize that movies could be you know more than than just like. You know, straightforward narratives and stuff like that. And one of them that sort of embarrassingly comes to mind is um, if you guys remember when when there was the remake of Psycho in like the late '90s, but that generated a lot of mainstream coverage for you know this is before blogs and websites, and so I just was you know whatever was on the radio at my parents, and you know this it had to really get through the mainstream to hit me as a teenager. But you know people really talked about like why why Psycho mattered and and sort of why it was weird that it was being remade. Um, but that kind of that made an impact on me. And I also remember watching Don't Look Now. And for some reason at the time, that's the, um, the, the it takes place in Rome. It's the, um, oh my gosh, I'm blacking on 
Julie Christie and, and Donald Sutherland, and he's in Rome with his wife and they're grieving their daughter. And, and for some reason, when I watched this the first time, um, with the, it, it, the dwarf, right? With the dwarf, right. Well, way mm-hmm. to give it away. Oh, but, sorry. um, the, it, for some reason it was, it was told, explained to me that there was no explanation for this movie, that it was just open to interpretation. And I've since rewatched it. And I also actually recently read the book that it's based on. And I feel like there's a pretty straightforward explanation, but at the time it was like, movies can be anything they don't need to be explained and that was pretty cool to to you know have brought into your your consciousness as a you know someone who's just getting involved in movies and interested in movies I want to give a quick shout out to a recent movie because I, I've become interested recently in, in Afrofuturism and I've just been exploring different films and this is not necessarily a on-the-nose example of Afrofuturism uh, depending upon your definition of it but there's this great movie from um, maybe like eight years ago or so called An Oversimplification of Her Beauty which if you even if you just watch the trailer you'll get a sense that this is um, a version of filmmaking you've never seen before which is tough to say in, in whenever this came out and certainly now that like how you know even when we're seeing memories of Matsuko we're saying oh reminded me of this reminded me of that so to see a movie this day and age that doesn't remind you of anything else is really is really cool it still hasn't all been done folks there's still a lot of new things to do it's like two months ago I watched Don't Look Now and it was the last conference I was I went to before COVID um there was a panel on Afrofuturism <laughs> so <laughs> Wow, you have to do that. You're one of your next topics. I can hear what you guys uh, think. I, I don't know. I don't know. I've never read Afro. And I'm trying to remember. There's one author who who works in. I haven't com- read. I mean, everything I know is from the movies. Uh, yeah, the one author I know who who was working from the com- was a, a, wrote comics. That was what this person was discussing. Um, but I, I don't remember the name off the top of my head now. Well, Ryan, you don't have to worry. My example is also a little bit more recognizable. So when KJ posed this question on other media that kind of expanded our views of what that media could accomplish versus a straightforward, in this case, TV show, it is involving one of the directors we've dealt with in a recent episode on Eraserhead. But what came to mind for me was Twin Peaks, the original one, not the remake or not remake. They added additional seasons. I I don't know exactly. I haven't seen the new one, but this goes back to the two season 1990 to 1991 uh, TV show. I did not see it at that time. I'm sure this was lumped into a plethora of other things I watched throughout the uh, the college years. It was probably recommended to me by either KJ, Tom, or our friend Doug, or maybe all of them quite possibly. But this is one that showed me, and again, it's, it's kind of a, dare I say, gateway drug to David Lynch. Uh, you can, it, it's something you can start to absorb without going straight into the fantastical, but it starts off as almost a murder mystery. A detective's in town, there's been a murder, things are gone. And then quickly we get into supernatural. So you almost got like a soap opera drama in the beginning. But then it goes in a lot of different directions. Not all of them get resolved. Uh, if you're looking for pure resolution, I don't have a, a, a full vivid memory of the entire series. It's been quite some times. My recall isn't quite there. But that was one I was like, okay, there's there's more going on here than meets the eye. Yeah, Twin Peaks is is definitely one of those shows that makes you wonder why we don't have more shows like that that just feel a little off, even though it's kind of a straightforward thing. 
that fell after two seasons. Yeah, then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of shows like that. And sometimes it can be hard to recognize when when things came sort of before your time, even if you were alive, but you didn't watch it then, and you've since watched other things that came after them. It can be hard, you know. And sometimes it's a little bit boring to be told those things when people are like, "Oh, you like this? You would have loved this." 1930s version and you're like I really don't want to watch the 1930s version even if it was highly influential but Twin Peaks is not like that everyone should go back and watch Twin Peaks and see its influence how it's trickled through because it's still wildly entertaining I also think that's a tricky one that was regular tv correct so that was a tricky one for general audiences I think that might have been especially 1990 1991 out of mainstream comfort zone And even when I watched it, I still think you had to view TV and film through a certain lens to truly appreciate it. So that was one that I looked back and I was like, yeah, I could see why this maybe only made two seasons, (laughs) you know, just because of the, there's a lot of shows like that, even, and this is going in a different topic, but Family Guy got cut because they kept moving it around and they couldn't gain an audience. Then the DVDs couldn't stay on the shelves. And yes, people used to buy seasons in stores and DVDs. And that's how it came back and it's still running. So it's, it's, it's interesting to look at it not only in that time frame, but in the present time frame. Well, KJ, this definitely was an interesting pick. We had a lot to talk about with this one. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, which is Tom in the bonus round. Congratulations. Yay, thank you. <laughs> and the people rejoice. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. What was the movie that changed the way you look at movies and why? Leave a comment on our YouTube channel and let's continue the conversation. Additionally, you can follow us on Twitter at Talking Studios. Thanks again, Ryan, for joining us today. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Indie Arts Voice. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Lehman 15. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 1927, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Should be a fun one. Talk to you then. Ding, 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 ding. And you can find me at Thomas Lehman 15. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. Should we have Tom do? I don't know if he said Twitter or is it self explanatory? Is there another at? No, 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 you didn't say Twitter. You just said, oh, you can find me at Thomas (laughs) Layman. You can find me, okay. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Layman15. I promise I'm not a bot. Turn your spam filter off or else there will be no dialogue. (laughs) Well, at least now they know to look on Twitter. So find me at Thomas Lehman 15. (laughs)